turn with me to Matthew chapter 11. As I've mentioned a number of times in this series, our march through Matthew's gospel, Matthew 12 is extremely significant because Matthew 12 is where the first century nation of Israel formally and finally reject Jesus as this coming king. And things change significantly after that. Now, we're not at Matthew chapter 12 yet, but we're on its doorstep in Matthew chapter 11. And so as we go through our text today and next week, Lord willing, we will see some clear signs of opposition to the Lord emerging that we're not formally there. And so as we come to Matthew chapter 11, starting in verse 2 this morning, that's what we're going to feel, this growing tension between the king offering the kingdom and the resistance from first century Israel. You know, expectations can dictate experiences. We know that. What we expect can determine or color the experience of that relationship, that accomplishment, that circumstance, whatever the case may be. If our expectations of those things are inaccurate or unrealistic or misguided, then disappointment and disillusionment and discouragement can oftentimes follow because our expectations were awry. And to expect your spouse to meet all of your needs all of the time or your job to provide unwavering sense of purpose and meaning or to expect your education to secure sustained credibility and respect no matter what or to expect your children to bring unblemished pride is a fool's errand we know that those are those are silly expectations because that type of anticipation is rooted in in mere wishful thinking a lot of the time right it's just wishful thinking and and is really a recipe for tragedy and it's much the same with our relationship with God and our following after the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, show me someone who is disappointed with God or frustrated with the Christian life or disillusioned with God's people with the church, and I will show you someone who has unbiblical expectations of all of those things. Why? Because expectations can dictate our experiences of those very realities. And this morning from Matthew chapter 11, we're going to see that our enjoyment of the Lord sits atop our expectations of the Lord. That those two things are very much related. To hold strong or to hold wrong expectations of the Lord is to sacrifice our enjoyment of the Lord. And we begin in this text in Matthew 11 with John the Baptist clarifying his expectations of Jesus. Look with me at verse 2 and 3. Now when John, while imprisoned, heard of the works of Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the expected one, or shall we look for someone else? And we need to remember that John was the preparatory herald that was sent by God to the nation of Israel to get them ready to receive her king. He came in the wilderness saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near, it's at hand, get ready, turn back to God. And we learn from elsewhere in the Gospels that because of his uncompromising ministry, John now finds himself behind bars, imprisoned, and we see here that he's a little bit confused. He'd, he'd announced the coming king, and he's saying, well, where's the kingdom then? I announced the king, he came on the scene, I faded from the scene, now where is the kingdom? What's the delay? Now, how is Israel resisting this message? If this was the king, and if this was the glorious good news of the coming kingdom, how on earth could Israel say no? How could they resist? 
And so John sought here reassurance and clarification. Are you the expected one? Are you the Messiah? Are you the deliverer? Are you the king? And if so, why, are we locked up? why am I locked up? You know, if the kingdom was coming, why am I behind bars? Verse 4, Jesus answered and said to them, that is the disciples of John, go and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight and the lame walk. The lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up and the poor have the gospel preached to them. Instead of a straight yes or no, Jesus responds with a list of works that had characterized his ministry to date. And we know because we've been through these chapters in the last number of months that he's really summarizing Matthew 8 and 9, where Jesus came on the scene performing miracles all over the place. And really here he's saying, give John my resume. You know, you've seen and heard what I've been doing. Tell him. Tell him what you've seen and heard. Blind seeing, lame walking, deaf hearing, dead living, lepers cleansed and poor hearing the good news. Go ahead, tell them. See, what we've learned as a congregation over the last number of weeks in Matthew's gospel, John here is being reminded that these works that Jesus accomplished, they were fulfillments of messianic expectation. That God had not been silent on what this Messiah would look like when he showed up. And Jesus is saying, tell John what you've seen here. In fact, we've read these passages a number of times over the last number of months, but they bear repeating. In Isaiah chapter 35, this is Yahweh speaking to his promised people about the kingdom to come. He says, then the eyes of the blind will be opened and the ears of the deaf will be unstopped. Then the lame will leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute will shout for joy. Sound familiar? That's what they were expecting. And Jesus comes along and says, tell John what you've seen here. It's exactly that. And then Isaiah 61 verse 1 says, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me. This is Messiah King speaking prophetically. Because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news, gospel to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners. So Jesus here shows John that he's fulfilled all of that. He says, think back to those messianic prophecies, what you expected. I'm doing all of those things. And we are reminded here that Jesus' miracles, the things he had been doing on earth, were not random at all. He wasn't just going about meeting random needs. No, they were very specifically chosen to prove his identity and fulfill messianic prophecies. We could say that Jesus was doing the expected work of the expected one. And John asks, are you him? And Jesus answers, my resume screams that I am him. I am definitely, definitely him. Now, these opening verses of our text, they kind of serve as a hinge point. I want to show you that. They serve as a hinge point in our passage this morning, because in one sense, they do look backwards, as I just said. They look backwards, summarizing what has passed, all the miracles that Jesus had done to authenticate his claims and his identity. But at the same time, they look forward, and they preview what is to come. And so this Q&A kind of, this informal Q&A between Jesus and John, it looks back at the identity-proving ministry of Jesus. It definitely does that. But at the very same time, it looks forward to the confused expectations of Israel. So John wasn't quite sure. He wasn't quite putting the pieces together. And what we'll find as we continue on in this passage is that really foreshadows what Israel was confused about. They didn't know what to make of John. They didn't know what to make of Jesus. Their expectations were all over the place. And if this is the hinge right in between this looking back and looking forward, we find verse 6 of our passage where Jesus says, And blessed is he 
who does not take offense at me. This is a beatitude, you know, similar to those that kicked off the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the meek, blessed are the poor in spirit. Here Jesus is saying, blessed is the person. And we need to remind ourselves what blessing means in this sense. It is divinely extended favor. It is good fortune from God. It is happiness, we can even say, a, a sincere happiness. Jesus declares blessedness upon all unoffended by his identity, by his claims, by his work. The NIV, the New International Version, which some of you may have in your hands, it renders this verse this way. It says, blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me, does not trip over my claims. Blessed is the person who, when confronted with the person and work of the Messiah, are not scandalized, are not grieved, are not angered, are not annoyed, are not defensive. We just say, okay. Okay, what's the opposite of being scandalized? What's the opposite of taking offense? I'd suggest it's enjoyment, isn't it? It's enjoying him. To not be scandalized by someone, to not be rubbed the wrong way by who they are or what they do or claim to do, is to enjoy that person. To, to love who they are and to be excited about what they say and do. It's, it's to enjoy the presence of and the interaction with and the, the input by that person. Think of household odors, a garbage can that's full, sitting in the sunshine. It's pungent, it's offensive, no one, it causes you to recoil. But then a scented candle, it invites relaxation, right? it invites pleasant thoughts, it ushers you into a, a peaceful space. And you have these two realities, one is offensive and one causes you to back off and, and try to get away from it, and the other invites. So here we have, blessed are the people who are not recoiled by me, who are not scandalized by, by me, but want to be around me, who come and, and, and feel the peace that I offer. So here in chapter 11, verse 6, Jesus says that, that all who, instead of being offended by the Messiah, enjoy and celebrate him, are blessed, are divinely favored, and are truly, truly happy. Understand in the, in the heavenly sense what it means to be happy. I can't read this text without thinking of the first psalm, Psalm chapter 1. And, and maybe as we were reading this, this came to your mind as well. In Psalm chapter 1... It says this. How blessed, there's our word, how blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of scoffers, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. There's the, the negative. Blessed is the man who doesn't do those things, verse 2, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And, his, on, and in his law he meditates day and night. Here come the effects. He will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, stability, which yields its fruit in season, productivity. And its leaf does not wither, sustainability, and whether he whatever he does, it prospers, effectiveness. That's true joy in the Lord. Blessed is that person who delights in the law of the Lord. And here we can relate to this because we think everyone I've ever met, everyone in this world longs to be happy. Everyone wants to be successful and productive. Everyone wants to be blessed, however they understand what that is. Everyone wants that. But here we also notice that our world, it gropes about blindly leading one another toward the, the latest, greatest conduit of, conduit of achieving that goal. 
Some of them are just usual suspects, right? Is it money will lead me to happiness and the blessed life? Is it opportunities, influence, reputation, family and friends? What is it that could lead? Is it an online presence? Is it sexual exploits? Is it freedom from all authority? I answer to no one. That's the mark of true blessedness in life, right? Where I am free from the chains of all expectations from anyone around me. We would say, are these the things that lead us to a blessed life, to lead us to be truly happy and enjoying this life? Or maybe, and this has been more common in the last decade, decade and a half, but maybe the path to true happiness is more internal, the world says. Don't, don't look out, and certainly don't look up. No, no, look within. Look within to find true happiness, true enlightenment. That's where it lies. The world invites us to define our own truth, you know, follow our own whims and desires, you know, shape your own reality. And it doesn't matter if that goes against biology. It doesn't matter if it, if it steps on everyone else's toes. It does not matter. Just be true to yourself. Make sure that you are happy. That's what's most important. Be true to you. Find your truth, your happiness. Be blessed. And tragically, we expect as Christians, the world, Romans 1, descending into this self-deceit. We expect that from the world. But tragically, sometimes it comes into our way of thinking as Christians as well. We start thinking similarly to the world. You hear even Christians buying into these nonsensical pursuits of, of meaning when according to the scriptures, according to God's word, it's very clear there's only one way to true happiness. Only one way, true happiness. There's only one conduit to true blessing. There's only one life that is characterized by true, lasting, nourishment, nourishing enjoyment. It's only one. And that is a consistent, unoffended and thereby submissive relationship with the King of Kings, Jesus Christ. And the more we fight against who he is, and the more we disagree with what he said and how he claims life works, the more we add disclaimers to Scripture and explain away its clear meanings in light of social pressures that will always change like the winds, the more we say, I know it says this, but what, what, what Paul was really meaning was probably this. The more we sidestep what God has said, we need to understand the more we are stumbling over him, the more we are offended by him, and we are sacrificing our enjoyment of him, the blessed life. And blessed is he who does not take offense at me, Jesus says. Now, let's swing this hinge open to the rest of our passage now. Swing it open, and what we're going to find is that what I said at the beginning, that our enjoyment of the Lord, it sits atop our expectations of the Lord. Okay, those two things are very much related. If we want to live a life characterized by enjoyment of God, we have to be careful to conform our expectations of God to his self-revelation, to what he said we can expect of him. And this is something, as we're about to see, that Israel did not do well in the first century, and they paid for it. First, as we keep reading our text, we notice that Israel had incomplete expectations. They, they weren't total. They were missing pieces. Look at verses 7 and 8. As these men, that is John's disciples, were going away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds about John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? But what did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Those who wear soft clothing are in king's palaces. These are obviously sarcastic rhetorical questions that Jesus is posing to Israel. He's saying, when you went out to see John, and you did go out to see John, didn't you? 
we look back to the beginning of Matthew's gospel and people are flocking out to the wilderness to see this, this wilderness weirdo, right? In camel's hair, leather belt, eating locusts and wild honey. It was a spectacle. And he was calling out the Pharisees. They wanted it. So they went out. And Jesus says, when you went out to see John, what were you expecting? Why did you go? It certainly wasn't because he was a weak, floppy reed down by the river bed was waving about with the winds and when the wind passes over its hollow top it makes that foreboding sound like a child blowing over top of a soda bottle no you didn't you didn't go out to see spineless hooting that's not what you went out to see is it no of course not and you didn't go out to see him because he had influence and wealth and he was dressed all nice that he could share with you no you went out to the wilderness for crying out loud you didn't go out to the palace that's not why you went out to see john he continues in verse 9 but what did you go out to see a prophet? Yes, I tell you, and one who is more than a prophet. We need to understand that after Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament, there was a 400-year period of silence between Yahweh and his people, between God and his people. It was a deafening silence. And so in the first century, when John comes along and they hear a voice crying in the wilderness, thus saith the Lord, that was music to Israel's ears. They went out flocking because they wanted to hear a prophet. And Jesus says, yes, that's what you found. But I got to tell you, you missed part of it. He's so much more than a prophet. You thought he was a prophet. That's right. And you went out to see him. But he's so much more than that. Verse 10, Jesus continues. This is the one about whom it is written. Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. So Jesus here quotes from Malachi chapter 3, that last book of the Old Testament, in which in Malachi chapter 3 verse 1, it says that before God arrives on earth, before he touches down and comes to bring justice and peace and shalom to this world, before he does that, a messenger will come first. Someone will come on the scene to announce the coming of Yahweh. And so John's not only a prophet, Jesus is saying, he's the messenger who's introducing the God set to bring about the kingdom of peace and wholeness and justice. Because of his proximity to the Messiah, Jesus says, nobody is greater than John. I mean, he is right here with the Messiah. How could anyone be greater than John? It's incredible. And you'll notice a little bit of a detail here where he says, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. It's a clear indication that the kingdom was not then. Because if the kingdom was then, John would be in the kingdom because he's the best of all of humanity, but he's not. The least in the kingdom is even greater than John. So we're still waiting for the kingdom at this point, and still we wait today. See, Israel, in this point, Jesus is pointing out that Israel went out to see a prophet but missed the big picture, and therefore, they were missing the beautiful promise that was standing right before them at that moment. They were about to reject something eternally good because their expectations of John, of Jesus, and of the kingdom were incomplete. He's a prophet. Yeah, we got that. But he's so much more. So they had incomplete expectations. As we keep reading, though, we find that they also had flat-out inaccurate expectations. Expectations that were also just wrong. We find that in verses 12 through 15. Jesus continues teaching these crowds. From the days of John the Baptist until now. So we have a timeline here. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence. And violent men take it by force. For all the prophets in the law prophesied until John. 
And if you are willing to accept it, John himself is Elijah who was to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. So not only was Israel missing the big picture in some ways, an incomplete set of expectations, but they were also flat out wrong in other ways, particularly when it comes to the timing of the kingdom and the identity of this Elijah figure. In verse 14, when it talks about Elijah again, Jesus is referencing back to Malachi. In Malachi chapter 4, verse 5. And this is actually, if you look at it, the second to last verse of the Old Testament. The second to last verse before God goes silent. And this is what he says. Malachi chapter 4, verse 5. Behold, I'm going to send you Elijah, the prophet, before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. Elijah is going to come. So before that great day of the Lord where God comes and brings true justice and true holiness to earth and sets up his kingdom, before then, Elijah is going to come. Israel heard that. And so rightly, they expected Elijah or an Elijah-type figure to directly precede the coming kingdom. And Jesus says, John could have been that Elijah. He could have been Elijah if Israel had been willing to accept him as such. If they had collectively turned back to God like he was calling them to repent, he would have been that Elijah and the kingdom would have come. But because they are failing to repent, that generation is at risk of losing the kingdom and another Elijah will have to come later on before the kingdom comes to pass. See, we see here that this first century kingdom offer was legitimate. It was a legitimate offer, but because Israel's expectations of this prophesied Elijah were wrong, they were missing it. Instead, as as Jesus was offering the kingdom to his people and traveling around preaching the gospel of the kingdom, while he was doing that, we see in verse 12 that there were people doing violence to the kingdom at the same time, namely the religious leaders. So Jesus comes along preaching the good news of the kingdom. Here comes the kingdom. We can bring in the kingdom. John can be that Elijah if you just repent. And meanwhile, there are religious leaders opposing the whole time, doing violence to the kingdom message, trying to derail it, trying to steal it from the people. So they're doing violence. Why? Because they ex- their expect- expectations of the king and his kingdom were not being met, were not matched. They were inaccurate, and it cost them dearly. Now, we've seen so far that there were incomplete expectations and there were inaccurate expectations, but finally, we see in this last section of our text for this morning that there were also immature expectations of Israel. Immature expectations. Look at verse 16 and 17. Jesus says, but to what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplace who call out to the other children. We say, we played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. Israel is like like kids who who demand others meet their expectations and do what they say they want to do. We say dance, you dance. We say mourn, you mourn. That's what kids think. Kids think that the world exists to meet their needs and to entertain them. That's a very immature way of looking at the world. And hopefully most of us grow out of that, right, as we grow up. And Jesus is saying here, Israel has not grown out of that. Israel is behaving like children, like selfish boys and girls, expecting John and Jesus to do what they say and expect. He continues in verse 18. For John came, neither eating nor drinking, and they say, he has a demon. He's fasting, right? He has a demon. Verse 19, the son of man came eating and drinking, the opposite of John. And they say, behold, a gluttonous man and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is vindicated by their deeds. It will all come out in the end. Truth will be revealed. 
But in the meantime, you can't satisfy this first generation of, or this, this first century generation of, of Israelites. You can't satisfy them. John comes doing one thing, they say, he's wrong. There's something wrong about him. Jesus comes doing the exact, same, uh, the exact opposite, he's wrong. You just cannot satisfy these immature people. We see here that Jesus was offensive to the people. They were stumbling all over him in this first century. What he said, who he was, what he was claiming, it all caused Israel to be scandalized. Oh, can't take it. They couldn't enjoy their Messiah because their expectations of him didn't match what God had revealed about him. Because they were undisciplined with what they expected, they, they sacrificed the blessing of a happy life that for them included the arrival of an eternal, perfect kingdom. Sacrificed. And we sometimes do the same thing as people today. We place upon God incomplete and inaccurate and immature expectations. In fact, it's almost universally the case that when you talk to someone who has quote-unquote left the faith, when you dig down and talk to them a little bit, almost always at the very root of it is unmet expectations. God didn't do this. He didn't answer that prayer. He didn't show up when I most needed him. He expected too much of me. He wanted me to give that to him. He wanted to lay down my identity, my sexuality, my money. He wanted all of that. No, 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 that's not the God I signed on to follow. It's missed expectations. That's not the God I want to serve. These are examples of unbiblical expectations heaped upon a very biblical God who has told us what, his what we can expect from him. And tragically, when we do this, the disappointment and the discouragement and the disillusionment we inevitably experience it's our fault. It's our fault. If I expect my son to never break my heart, to never embarrass me, to, to never disappoint me, whose fault is it when he eventually does all of those things? You know, is it his fault? Or is it my fault for heaping upon this young one unrealistic and stupid expectations that if I just stepped back and thought about it, thought about it, I wouldn't have heaped those inappropriate expectations upon him. If I'd done my homework and just thought about it, it wouldn't be the case. Whose fault is it? It's my fault as the parent. Likewise, whose fault was it in the first century that Israel didn't recognize John, that they, that they didn't believe Jesus, that they rejected the kingdom, that they hardened their hearts because none of it matched what they expected? Whose fault was it? I mean, God had sent the prophets. He had warned them. He had pursued them. He had guided them. He had disciplined them. For, for centuries, he had done those things. Whose fault was it that their expectations weren't being met in the first century? And we have to say it was theirs. It was their fault. They took offense at Jesus and were consequently not blessed. Who, does, who stumbles over me will not be blessed. Blessed is he who does not stumble, who enjoys me, who accepts me. See, when God disappoints us, when you know, salvation hasn't been what we thought, when discipleship has... You know, it hasn't been as rewarding as maybe we envisioned at the beginning. It hasn't felt like what it was supposed to feel like, what others said it was supposed to feel like. Um, you know, when the pursuit of holiness gets more demanding than we were anticipating, when all of those things happen, we need to understand, friends, that it is always our fault. Always our fault. And never God's fault. When we are disappointed and disillusioned and discouraged with the Christian life. It's always our fault and never God's. It's sin. We put expectations on God that he never affirmed. 
We, whether they're incomplete or inaccurate or immature, it doesn't really matter. They're inaccurate expectations we put upon God, and therefore our experience of God in the Christian life is not one of enjoyment, but it's one of stumbling and offense. And in the end, we need to understand that we suffer, and we've experienced that, I'm sure, most of us. We suffer when we do that. We sacrifice the blessed life. We trade a life of enjoyment with the good, just, holy God of the universe for a life of offense against that God of our own making, honestly. It's not even the real God by the end of the day. One author I read a number of years ago, he wrote this. He says, here's the reality. Most people who are angry with God are angry with, God, are angry with him for being God. That's what they're angry about. They're not angry because he has failed to deliver what he promised. They're angry because he has failed to deliver what they have craved, expected, or demanded. That's true. And we want to be people who live lives marked by true, divinely inspired enjoyment with God. And he wants that for us, to walk in that enjoyment with the Lord, no matter what we're experiencing life in life. We know that joy in the Lord, it transcends experiences in this life. That's what we want. And, and to do that, this text is really inviting us and challenging us to manage our expectations. What are we expecting of the Lord? Manage your expectations. We need to, to make sure that what we expect of God is rightly, rightly aligned with and submitted to what he has revealed about, about himself and his ways and his purposes. We need to make sure that those are aligned. We need to manage our expectations. Make sure that they are aligned with what God has said, expect this of me. Because when God says, expect this of me, he means it. We can take that to the bank. We know that we can expect that of God, that faithfulness. He's true to his word. So when we heap upon him expectations that, that he's never given us, then we run into problems. You know, sometimes, maybe you've experienced this, when you're dealing with discomfort in life, you might go to the doctor, and the doctor will ask you to rate your pain on a scale of 1 to 10. I'm always caught in a tricky moment there. I want to look tough, right? But then I don't get help. Oh, I'm a one, totally. Then what are you doing here? No, I'm not going to help you then. But I don't want to say 10. That would push me through the line, but then I feel like a wimp. So he says, where's your, your pain on a scale of one to 10? And you say, oh, a six or a four, whatever the case may be. And it's a way of kind of managing or, or giving a, a, a quantitative analysis of our agony. How can we rate it here? Well, I'm going to challenge us this week, and maybe even just at the end of this service. I'm about to close and close with a benediction. And maybe just sit for a moment after this. And and ask yourself a very simple question in response to this text. On a scale of 1 to 10, how's my joy in the Lord? How is my, if I'm really honest, and this is year is a great year to ask that, because a lot of the, uh, the conveniences, the things we're used to, the comfort has been challenged or stripped away. It's a hard time to ask ourselves that question. On a scale of 1 to 10, how is my enjoyment of the Lord? Do I find joy in him? Do I enjoy thinking and talking about him with people? In spite of what's going on in my life, when I talk to someone on the phone or I talk to my family members and say, you know what the Lord taught me today? Isn't the Lord great in how faithful he is? I know what's going on in our life, but, but you know what so-and-so told me the other day the Lord did for them? We talk about this thing, and they give us a bit of joy. We love talking and thinking about the Lord and his person and his work. Or maybe we think, do I find rest in his promises? In spite of everything going on right now, do I grip those promises I know he's made and say those will one day be mine because he is good to his word. He is faithful. He is true. He cannot lie. Do those bring me joy, those promises that are securely mine? Do I long to be with his people? We prayed that earlier. 
And if you're watching this online and you truly long to be together again, I commend you. That is a good and godly reaction. On the flip side, I would challenge you. If you are sitting at home saying, this is pretty good. I could get used to this. In fact, I kind of am. In fact, when we're allowed to gather, I might just keep on tuning in online. I would challenge you that that is probably a sign of immaturity. Be very frank with you. As God's people and dwelt by God's spirit, we want to be with God's people. And that's not to say anything about the perfection of the people. That's not to say anything about how lovely the people are. It's because that's what we're made for. We are a body, and the body needs to be together. Do I have enjoyment in the Lord? Do I long to be with God's people? And in spite of the circumstances that you may be dealing with, do I consider myself blessed to be in Christ? You read some of the pastoral epistles or even Ephesians. You say, in Christ, I am this, 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 this. I can't even understand all of that. Those blessings I have in Christ right now in the heavenlies. And nothing that happens to me in this earth can take those away. If that doesn't provoke joy in us, then maybe we're not understanding who we are in Christ. And that's a place where we can grow in. Do I find myself smiling as I ache for my future resurrection and glorification? Promises of the Lord. We will one day have glorified bodies and walk on a glorified earth. Redemption awaits. No matter what's going on in my life, do I think about that? I just can't help but smile and ache for it. Because with creation, I groan for the redemption of all things, for the coming of the Lord, for the trump to sound, the Lord to send. Even so, it is well with my soul. So how's my joy in the Lord? Scale of 1 to 10. How is my joy in the Lord? And, and if you sit here and say, you know what? I'd say a seven, maybe, or an eight. Then praise the Lord this week. Spend time just praising the Lord. Say, thank you, Lord, that I am experiencing the blessings, the happiness that you have promised. Thank you that my expectations have been managed. Thank you for the people, for the church, for the mentor, for the family members that have helped me to hone my expectations, to keep them in line with you, that have enabled this blessed life. Thank you, Lord. Celebrate that. If you say, I have a 10, and be careful, because you're coming for my job. You're probably going to take my job soon then. I, I don't want to hear that. If you have an 8 or a 9, though, praise the Lord. How can you not? If you have a high score on that, that's a thrill. Thank the Lord for how he has providentially worked in your life to bring you to a place where you can honestly say that. That's not by accident. Our Lord is providential. He is kind. And he has guided you to align your expectations with his. Praise the Lord. Now, at the same time, if you honestly say, you know what, I'd say it's like a two, a three. I just do not rejoice in the Lord. None of those things that you mentioned sound real to me. It's not that I don't want them. I just don't feel those things. Then I encourage you that after you've assessed yourself and said, you know, I, I don't feel that enjoyment of my relationship with God that I have through Christ. But I encourage you to pray and just, Lord, reveal to me where are expectations in my life that I've placed upon you that are inaccurate or that are incomplete or that are immature? Show me those things by the power of the Holy Spirit that's in me. Show me where I am off. And friend, if you hear this and, and you prayed that and you still struggle, I don't know where it is. I don't know what I'm missing. I want to be joyful. I just don't know what I'm ex- expecting of God that's wrong. Then I really encourage you to get in touch with us here at the church call the elders, call me, email us, whatever it takes. We would love to pray with you about that. We would love to talk with you about that, explore that. Where are the expectations that you have of God going awry? Call us. We, we want to work through that. We want you to experience the enjoyment of the Lord that he offers here. He says, and blessed is he who does not take offense at me. 
but who accepts me, who enjoys me, who loves what I bring and what I promise. I mean, what a church we would grow and continue to be if its members, if the, the members of this body of Christ, when we were allowed to come back, came back as people who all enjoyed the Lord in spite of what we just endured. We just say, praise the Lord. That is a church that is, is a light and salt in this world, in a world that is trying to find happiness and blessedness and all of these other erroneous places. We know where it is. May we act like it as God's people. May we take up his offer and say, I want to enjoy you. May my expectations of you be aligned with what you've revealed. <laughs>